Hey everyone, this is Lynn Bartown, and you are listening to the Apex Hour on KSUU Thunder 91.1. In this show, you get more personal time with the guests who visit Southern Utah University from all over, learning more about their stories and opinions beyond their presentations on stage. We will also give you some new music to listen to and hope to turn you on to some new sounds and new genres. You can find us here every Thursday at 3 p.m. on the web at seu.edu slash apex or email us at seuapex at icloud.com. But for now, welcome to this week's show here on Thunder 91.1. Hey everyone, this is Lynn Vartan and you are listening to the Apex Hour on KSUU Thunder 91.1. This is kind of an exciting day for me because this is actually my very first best of show. I am not on campus today. I'm in Los Angeles performing some concerts and playing some really cool contemporary modern music for piano and percussion and doing some master classes. And so for the Apex Hour today, we're going to visit some of our favorite moments from the past. The first one that I have for you is one of our first speakers from fall of 2017, and that's Lemon Anderson. Lemon came on campus in partial celebration of Hispanic Heritage Month and read some of his poetry and talked about his life, and it was just a really, really cool exchange of ideas and hearing his story. So I have a little bit of that for you. Stay tuned right here on the Apex Hour, KSUU Thunder 91.1. Deep down... There is an old man by the river, blue denim in his flow. If Martha's Vineyard had a stepchild, I would be there with the rusty picket fence glow. Desert sand to a black beach springer, ghetto Shakespearean clown, little shop a horror fanatic daydreaming of beautiful girls from Skid Row with black eyes singing downtown, New Yorkian exile. Frozen Japan kicks. Jordan stacked next to a collection of homies locked up posing for Polaroid flicks. Suffering from visions of grandeur. Sucking the success out of pain. Staring at dirty napkins, seeing the art in a coffee stain. Cradle to the grave. Distant coolness. Red wine emo. 7.30 rudeness. Southside outlaw. Flying cut sleeves. 80 blocks from Tiffany's on heavy rotated. YouTube bleeds blood. Flooded with anti-social justice. Sniffing gunpowder out of the peril of a propaganda musket. Immediate descendant of the cool Vietnam draft. Boricua mixed with lower east side heroin. Resulted in the aftermath. I'm from the house of Step It, Fetch It, Burnt Down. Lyricist Lounge, Poet Laureate of the Old Hip Hop Underground, Son of Drama, Child of the Bard, An English Soldier at Agincourt, Either Die or Go Hard, Kill or Be Martyred, I am Big Pantameter on the regular, So the Gift Goes Farther. An Aristotle thug, Dealing with the real, Plato is the enemy of the soul, Like a Def Jam deal, Watch me, and my 1983 Bop G, New York City's son of LQ's unit square in the Roxy's. Watch how these American autosomers try to stop me. Hate me when I walk through the door. Love me when I blow up the spot. Please, when they first see me, they never take me serious. Till they find out my talent don't come from the color of my skin, but from my wholehearted experience. So watch me. Me and my story, how I lived it. If you were my mother every morning, I'll be walking you to the methadone clinic. My older brother's in Iraq, killing corner store robs. America, I don't forgive it. So watch me deal with the ridicule and shame, the worst heartache and pain. And how I maintained was by turning myself into the king of the poetry spit fame. Watch me turn my pennies into dimes, my darkness into shine, many of my mistakes into nailing it forever. One time, watch me make love. To hard work ethics, because game without ambition is game never respected. These are not words. These are my blood, sweat, and tears from the real side of Franklin County to them Sunset Park Piers. And my homies in the prison yard still finishing their years because I'm an ex-con. But an ex-con has always been a friend of me. Don't discriminate because it was written that even Jesus had a felony. So watch me be the artist who was born ready made. Watch me take my lemons. And make the best goddamn lemonade.
Thank you. You don't. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh! Good. Please have a seat. I know we'll have more, more of that coming. All right. Thank you. This is great. Hello, everyone. <laughs> That's cool, right? <laughs> um, so I'd like to start out with a question that I know you get asked all the time. Sure. And people have been telling me, oh my gosh, he has such a cool name. Cool. And so yeah. can you tell us the story about your name? Yeah. So my brothers are 100% Puerto Rican, and they're also brown Puerto Rican. Mm-hmm. And my father's Norwegian. So I came out really blonde and white, and I had a really fairly large head. I had this head, but in a little body. <laughs> so... They called me Lemonhead when I was young. And then I met them halfway. I said, look, can we just take the head out? Just call me Lemon and <laughs> this will work out. And eventually everyone just called me Lemon. But my real name is Andrew. Yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> and as a performer, do you feel that those are two different personas, Lemon and Andrew? Or are they completely merged? No, Andrew doesn't exist anymore, really. Only mm-hmm. like on paper when a cop pulls me over and I have to give him my license. <laughs> it's just like, well, I'm Andrew. I can't tell him my name is Lemon. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, usually paperwork, I don't really identify what, what Andrew means. I don't, mm-hmm. like, it was only used in school. Even in school, my teachers called me Lemon. Yeah. Uh, I was Lemon for a long time, and I wasn't Anderson. But I wanted to honor my father. Yeah. As I started to mature as an artist, I felt like, you know, Anderson was good. It felt great. Yeah. It also is an opportunity to kind of change. You know, it was, I, I guess it was a psyche thing. I kind of psyched myself out and said, all right, maybe I'm not a lemon anymore. I'm Lemon Anderson. Mm, great. And, it and I know we're going to talk about that. This, the way we, we've been talking a lot the last couple of days about sort of how to structure this, and, and, and Lemon, in, your, in his generosity, was just said, you know, I don't want to just get up and talk about myself. I, don't want, I really want to be what you guys need or, or what you would like to hear. And so we started talking about some topics that might be, you know, important or interesting. Um, and so he sort of has let this evolve into this sort of extended interview type session. And then we're going to mix and match, mix in some performance along with it and hit some themes that, that I, that are really compelling to me in your work and in our conversations. So the first thing I kind of like to go at is, is, um, success and hard work. Mm -hmm. Um, that's something that I've seen in your, in your work a lot and and that you've talked about even just now, you Mm -hmm. mentioned work ethic and hard work. Um, um, what 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 is success to you right now? I, I have children, so for a long time I, I thought you had to be successful in order to be happy. Mm. And my child once told me that I put too much pressure on her about being successful. Mm. And I learned from her, right? I, I had no idea because, you know, I worked really hard so she didn't have to repeat what I had to go through as a young man or as a kid. Um, and success... You know, it's like this. You have to just love the process because the results don't belong to you. Ah. You know, you just got to work and you got to love to work or you got to fall in love with working. It's like a relationship and you got to make that relationship work. It's your partner. Yeah. The process. The results don't belong to you because you can have a really great show that no one wants to come see. I know the feeling. Yeah. You can have a really successful idea that no one wants to buy. But you just created it. And that's, just, you know, that's the real success, the process. You have to fall in love with the process. It took a while to learn that. And that's what I was going to... Lucky gonna, you. you guys yeah, I was going to ask you that. Was, it, uh, was that something that hit you all in one fell swoop? Or is, did that evolve, that concept of falling in love with it? How did you come to that realization? I was tired of being talented. Oh. I was just like super talented and everyone called me talented, but I didn't have a body of work. And I felt that the, the, the artists that I respect and look up to had a body of work and they weren't talented. You know, they weren't the cool guys. Mm. They were just the guys who had uh, like projects. Yeah. Uh, and this started happening after deaf poetry when, you know, we were given this opportunity to be on a major stage and have a great platform like HBO for so long. But it really didn't define true work. When I looked behind the camera and there was the camera guy, the DP, the second AD, the lighting guy, the sound guy. And those guys had long careers. And I wanted that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wanted this thing to last forever. I love it. Yeah. Uh, so I started to 
pull back a little bit. And I was taught, I took Shakespeare, uh, what, yeah, we'll talk about that. But I, I just learned that, what is it that I want? Do I want to be talented or do I want to be just working? And I fell in love with like, yo, the process. Like, I just want to be working. In order to work, you have to put out work. You have to have specs and people have to see your work instead of who you are. Because who you are is going to pretty much fade away, you know, what all art, what you know, artists. I think we define great musicians by a body of work and not just one job. Right. So that that's I think that's amazing. I like yeah. that a lot. Uh, looking through the lens of this audience, we have you know students here, faculty here, community members here. Yeah. What advice do you have, if any, for them on how to f- fall in love with the process or how to fall in love or find that? Is there anything we can do to help yeah. each other? Sure. Yeah. I, I, this has to be a lifestyle for you, right? You know, your work, your dreams. First of all, your dreams, be careful who you share them with. That's first, right? You know, you Why have, do you say that? Because you, you might be really ambitious and no one will understand. Like, you know, my uncles and my family didn't understand that I wanted to always be on stage. They, they didn't get it. Like, uh, it's, not someone any, it's not something anyone did in my family. Uh, so I had to be real careful in sharing that. And then I had to make a lifestyle out of it. That's the point. I had to be around other artists who were doing it every day. And that's all I, all I wanted to be around. And then the lifestyle really started to shape the artist of Lemon and not Lemon from the hood or nothing like that. It was like, oh, Lemon really knows his work, right? So some of the artists that I started to hang around with and make a lifestyle with uh, were great readers, great, you know, they studied great poets. And instead of just writing poetry, I actually studied poetry. And when you study, like a great musician, a great musician is uh, an accumulation of other musicians. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. they define their own style. Right. Uh, and I was really su- successful because of that. And all of the projects that I worked on, I've always had a great history of, like, the work I do, right? Mm-hmm. So... And still now, to this day, I was just in Montana building a new solo show. And I was able to see all the new poems that I'm writing with poets behind them. You know, it was like Sekou Sindiata was here. You know, E.K. was there. Willie Perdomo was here. I started to see other poets in the poems. And that that was helpful for me in not having writer's block. Yeah. You know, just to steal from them. Yeah. To go along that, I mean, I think that's a beautiful concept to think about, to surround yourself with people who mm-hmm. are doing it to develop that lifestyle. That's something you did a lot in the beginning. Yeah, that's uh, how I got into the deaf poetry. You yeah. sort of really, like, doggedly followed some, some mentors or yeah. some leaders. And can you talk about that experience and, and mm-hmm. that, that opening, again, through the lens of, you know, hoping to inspire some people here to maybe sure. think about doing that for themselves, too? Yeah, so... I really didn't have a lot of poems. I just knew a lot of poems that were written by other poets. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that came because I met a man named Reggie Gaines who had won a Tony Award as a spoken word artist. And I thought, wow, that, how do you do that, yeah. right? Most of the spoken word artists I knew, let me just move to the side so I don't have my back turned to you guys. Uh, most of the spoken word artists I knew were just slamming poetry uh, on Friday nights and they would compete against each other. And I, wasn't, I was too sensitive for competition, uh-huh. at least at that point. You know, I just, and I knew they were tricking their poems to win, right? It was like, oh, it's, I can see it's strategic. Uh, and it's not as honest as I would do as an artist, as a poet. But I had no poetry. And so when HBO came up, I, was, uh, I walked into the room of the first season and the, and the pilot was being shot. And I noticed that these guys were going for each other's heads as poets. Like everyone was fighting for that slot, right? Oh, wow. Because you weren't guaranteed. It wasn't guaranteed that your poem would get on the show. Uh-huh. So everyone was slamming against each other in front of Russell Simmons and Stan Lathan. And I literally wanted to walk out because this is not what I do, right? Uh-huh. I don't even have enough poems for this. Like I can't compete with these guys. Yeah. So I literally jumped on stage and read a poem that wasn't mine. It was by Etheridge Knight, and it was called Shine, the Stoker. You know, uh, let me see if I can remember it. You know, as white America sings about the unsinkable Molly Brown, tell me who was uh, the Titanic. You know, so it was like, and it was just this bravado style of poetry, but I had no idea 
that the director and producer, his father read him that poem as a kid. Oh, wow. And so he, he sees this guy, and I was really young. You know, I was like, I, I looked extra young. I was about 21, and I looked like I was 16. <laughs> so I'm reading this poem that's been around for 100 years, and he's trying to pull me to the side. And he was just like emotional, and then Richard Pryor liked it. You know, it's just like it started getting some buzz, and he put me in the pilot. And then I became connected to the process of making this show better instead of just being a poet. Oh, that's amazing. See what happens? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like he would always pull me to the side and say, man, all these poets, man, they want a five minutes on stage. Lemon, just give me a minute. And I would just do a minute poem. <laughs> that awesome. was enough to cover time. Yeah. And it was enough for, for them to use it as a trailer. So I wasn't the best poet on deaf poetry. I was the most accessible poet on deaf mm-hmm. poetry. And that worked in the long run because I ended up with the most episodes and the most poems on that show for seven years. I love that about you because what you said, you, you were trying to make the project better rather yeah. than, than just being the best poet there. Yeah, that sure. seems like that hasn't ever failed you. Is that no. still kind of your motto? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I love it. It's, it's like I have a solo show, but I have a director and I have a developer and I have a dramaturge and I have a, a lighting and sound guy, a stage manager and all of these People have gone to schools I've never attended. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, my director went to Yale. Uh, Emily went to Emerson. Uh, Rob went to uh, Princeton. And so I get to sit with these guys as I'm writing my show and soak up all of the plays they've worked on yeah. and talk about well, what, was, what was good about this play and these character choices. And that also benefited me when I started to write commercials. Ah. So, I, you know, I work for Nike and Red Bull and I write commercials for them. But it's always the playwright yeah. that goes in the room. I'm, I never get rid of the poet or the playwright. Mm-hmm. It's always with me. So my job is that I'm a poet. Yeah. I just happen to do all these other things. All right. Well, that was an example of one of the Apex events from September of 2017. I can't believe it. We're in 2018. And that was Lemon Anderson. He spent a couple days here on campus and just did incredible poetry readings and met with different classes and a different group of students. And as you can hear from the interview, was just a great artist and was willing to tell his story. Another part of this show is going to be to try to turn you on to some new and different music, um, maybe get you interested in some different genres or different styles, things that maybe you haven't heard before. So we're going to start with a piece called Beauty Is, and this is being performed by the Opera Cabal Ensemble. But a vain and good beauty is, but a vain and good. A shining glass that faded suddenly.
All right. Well, we are back here, KSUU Thunder 91.1. My name is Lynn Vartan, and I am the director of Apex Events, and this is the Apex Hour. That song you just heard was called Beauty Is, performed by the Opera Cabal Ensemble. And if you're interested in that music, the album is called Passionate Pilgrim, and it's available on Apple, um, Apple Music or Spotify or wherever you listen to your music. We have another past moment for you, another special moment from last semester, and that is our awesome guest, Maria Inahosa. She is the absolute fierce uh, NPR host and journalist and just all around amazing person. Uh, and we really enjoyed having her on campus. So let's listen to a little bit from her presentation on campus. Uh, this was in October. And this is Maria Hosa and her visit to Southern Utah University. And this is KSUU Thunder 91.1. What we have in our country, though, is this vibrant culture of critique and of criticism. And in fact, of our historic and patriotic duty to always question, which is, in fact, why one of my favorite thoughts about patriotism comes from a character who is imminently and could only exist in the United States of America. Because it could only be in our country that you could be a man born into slavery, be an enslaved child, Frederick Douglass, then become freed, then travel the world, then publish your own American newspaper, the North Star. And you choose, as Frederick Douglass did, to live in the country that once enslaved you, but that also fought for your freedom and then empowered you as an equal. And that man, Frederick Douglass, who looks nothing like me, taught me the essence of patriotism, which is, loosely loosely paraphrasing, that those of us who love our country the most cannot be afraid of criticizing. You know, that sometimes painful criticism comes from love and comes from knowing that we have to do better because we must. Because the formerly silenced silenced indigenous, the formerly enslaved, the formerly arrested and jailed Americans of Japanese descent, and the currently targeted undocumented immigrants who in some cases are the most American of all of us, These two are our American stories. Some are beautiful, some are painful. So my work as an American journalist right now is to add what I call mi granito de arena, my little grain of salt to the history of our country by helping to tell these stories. Look, I used to have shame and silence, right? I used to wish all the time when I was little that why was my name Maria de Lourdes Hinojosa Ojeda. Why couldn't I just be Lisa or Randy? Why did my parents have to speak with that accent? Why didn't I have blonde, straight hair? Why didn't I have relatives who were pilgrims? Why couldn't I be white? Now, there's a saying in Spanish, no hay mal que por bien no venga. There is no bad from which good cannot come. And I really love, really, really love that saying. And there is a lot of bad that's going on out there in the world, all over. So I I, I feel it. I also want to acknowledge the fear. um, And acknowledge that fear of change can be really challenging for all of us, for many of us. So your invitation, once again, is to me part of this continuum of the conversation of our democracy. To be willing to take on the bad and find the good in it. For example, truthfully, with a broken heart, I have to tell you I'm still not over Charlottesville. I'm just not. I'm not over the chanting about white men being replaced by Jews or by immigrants or by women. They feel so much hate. What they don't understand is like, we just want to be friends. We just want to fall in love. We just want to see ourselves in you, not replace you. Become a part of you because we already are. You just don't see it, right? We just want to be with you together, see you as equals, not replace you. But our entire country, right, was shocked when we saw what happened there. 
seen all of that in full display. This can't be who we are, right? This isn't who we are. Or is it? You know, why, why is it that it causes us pain to have to look at this part of who we are? Because I'm one of those people, I'm one of those journalists, I think because um, I'm also a mother and I'm an American citizen and I have American citizen kids that I'm just like, that's not who we are. We're not that anymore. And then, you know, younger, that's why we love the millennials, because they're like, no, no, no. They start criticizing and tearing you down. We all know that. Those of you who are not millennials know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, So I started doing a, a look inside my own experience, and I realized I went back to this story of what happened when I was six years old, six or seven, and a guy by the name of George Wallace was running for president. And... I knew just from hearing, and there was no Twitter, Facebook, there was black and white television, and the news was on in the evenings, period. But I knew that this man, George Wallace, did not like me. And my best friend was Jewish, Linda, Linda Kahn. And I remember walking home one day um, and with Linda, and we were talking about, very seriously, whose basement we were going to hide in if George Wallace became president. Because we knew he did not like Jewish people and we knew he did not like Mexicans. And so Charlottesville made me think back on that. Like, well, wait a second. This has been around. I've even felt it. It's almost as if it's a part of who we are, right? And yet we have a hard time discussing it. And I'm sure that right now as you're hearing this, you might feel a little sad about the fact that me as a little Mexican-American girl with a green card. Hold on, let me take off my let me take off my hoop so it doesn't bother the microphone. Okay. Um I I know that you you know you're connecting with me through this story. That narrative. There's an emotional connection that you have about that little girl. And that's why I love to tell stories. So when I was growing up in Chicago, my family consumed the news media voraciously. Time magazine, 60 minutes, meet the press, the evening news but I never saw myself there. So I never thought that my stories had value or that I had value. I remember standing up right next to the television set. By now it was a color television set. So it was like early 1970s and we splurged to get one. I remember standing right next to the television set and watching someone by the name of Dan Rather um, reporting on the Vietnam War. And even though I, 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 loved seeing the news, I was always wondering why I wasn't there or anyone who looked like me. Guess who I was sitting with just a couple of days with, eye to eye, face to face, having an equal conversation as American journalists. That guy, Dan Rather, who now has a show on Sirius XM Radio. I don't know how old Dan Rather is. He's a little old. Er. Um, but you know what? He's at it every day. He was one of our chief news anchors. And now he's inviting me to have a conversation with him about who we are. This man who I used to, you know, just see through the television screen. And now we are equals. That's what we're talking about. Not replacing, but becoming your equal and being able to look into each other's eyes and have this conversation as equals. And Mr. Rather was asking me, actually, on his Sirius XM radio show, to communicate to his mostly Anglo audience, who might be a little bit afraid of the changes that are going on right now. So he asked me, he said, what would you say? What would you say to them? And I said, well, you know, with love and respect, I would ask a central question. What exactly are you afraid of? I mean, this country was multi-culti way before the pilgrims even stepped foot on this country, uh, on this land, right? We had multiple tribes who were living, finding ways to live together. Um, So that was already happening here. But, you know, much of the narrative right now told by the mainstream media is that we, the other, are somehow seen as, the you know, this agent of change but that it's an agent of change that is here to take over, to take away, to take something from you. 
and that this demographic change must be looked at with a sense of dread or loss or of concern. And this is why owning my narrative, owning my voice, and owning my power is so essential. Because you see, the mainstream media has historically struggled with being inclusive and representative. In fact, since September 11th, 16 years ago, our newsrooms have actually gotten less diverse, right? At a time, bless you, at a time when demographic change is booming, we have actually fewer voices of diverse backgrounds reporting and telling this epic story of change. So it's no surprise that the tenor of the reporting on this demographic change, if it's coming from non-diverse newsrooms, then somehow this change is looked at as something worrisome, kind of like, oh my God, what is happening? What is all of this change about? As opposed to, whoa, isn't this fascinating, right? So I'm not surprised that a candidate and a president who is playing on that kind of fear of change wins the election which is why I end up creating my own nonprofit media company, the Futuro Media Group. Because while I love and respect our great American newsmen, like Edward R. Murrow, Dan Rather, Walter Cronkite, John Chancellor, Studs Terkel, all those guys that I've won awards named after, which is like a total honor, but they know that I could never see the world through their eyes, right? But I'm just as an American journalist as they are. And I didn't know this when I created my own nonprofit company, that it turns out I am the only Latina woman running a nonprofit media company in the United States of America that is telling stories from what we call a POC perspective, a people of color perspective. Mind you, our audience for Latino USA, our radio show distributed by NPR, just grew by 45% over the last year. And the majority of our audience is not Latino. So there is an interest there is a hunger on the part of our country to understand who we are, a curiosity. But let me tell you why, for example, an example of, of why, how somebody who approaches this diversity um, approaches stories differently. All right. So that's just another little taste of some of the events that you hear here at Southern Utah University. You're listening to KSUU Thunder 91.1. That excerpt that you just heard was Maria Inojosa, the well-known and well-revered and super fierce NPR host and journalist. And we were so fortunate to have her on campus. But now it's time for a little bit more music, and I want to turn you on to something else. And this is a fantastic pianist. Uh, his name is Tigran Hamasian. He's one of my favorites. And this tune is called A Fable. And again, we're here on KSUU Thunder 91.1. Thank you. 
All right. Well, you're back here in KSU Youth under 91.1. And that was A Fable, the title track from the album A Fable by the amazing pianist Tigran Hamasyan. Our last excerpt for the day from last semester is um, the incredible artists Glenn Velez and Loire Kotler, who were here in November of last year. And uh, Loire is what what she calls herself a rhythmic vocalist, and they take jazz standards and ethnic music and rearrange them for their duo. Loire does the jazz vocal. Um, articulation. She speaks with a very kind of percussion language. And then Glenn Velez plays all different kinds of frame drums. And so I'm going to let you hear a little bit from their their visit on stage, which was in November of this past year here at Southern Utah University. And again, you're listening to KSUU Thunder 91.1. Here are Glenn Velez and Loire Kotler. Bye. 
kita dum ta gadini duma duma ta dum kita dum ta kita dum ta gadini duma duma ta dum kita dum ta kita taka dum taka dini taka dimi duma duma dimi taka taka dum kita taka dum ta kita taka dum taka dimi taka dimi duma duma dimi taka taka dum kita taka dum ta kita taka dum 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 We are just we are just so delighted to be here and um, and give you an inside view about what we do and what we are passionate about, what our life's work is about. And um, that that song, I'm sure some of you recognize it. It's a jazz. It's a, it's a piece from the Ameri- the Great American Songbook uh, called the called Bye Bye Blackbird by Ray uh, Henderson and Mort Mort Dixon. And um, something that Glenn and I love to do is take some of these jazz standards and reimagine them um, from the perspective of rhythm and pulse. And, and that is just one example of, of, of just that. And we're going to, I think we're going to have a solo next. Yes, I'm going to play a solo for you on this tambourine. It's a $30 tambourine. I got it at a music store not too long ago. And I was thinking for the title of this tune that I'm doing and uh, thought a while and I just call it Blue Tambourine. So here's a tambourine solo.
that pretty much wraps us up for this week. You've been listening to the best of the Apex Hour. My name is Lynn Vartan, and I'm not in the studio today. I'm saying hello to you from Los Angeles, but I've put together these best of moments for you, and I hope they were enjoyable. Uh, Stay tuned next week for more of the Apex Hour right here on KSUU Thunder 91.1. Thanks so much for listening to the Apex Hour here on KSUU Thunder 91.1. Come find us again next Thursday at 3 p.m. for more conversations with the visiting guests at Southern Utah University and new music to discover for your next playlist. And in the meantime, we would love to see you at our events on campus. To find out more, check out suu.edu slash apex or email us at suapex at icloud.com. Until next week, this is Lynn Vartan saying goodbye from the Apex Hour here on Thunder 91.1.